1: Our aim
2: is that people have an affordable way of life, so it's not just an affordable home, but that by reducing their consumption and expenditure, they will have a better quality of life, so therefore, a microgrid.
3: These are fully net zero microgrids. Here, because actually it's it's internal, you're not putting a load on the grid, you're actually taking a load off the grid, and you've got the battery storage there that provides a two-way support network for the grid.
0: Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt, Becky and Fraser. Today we'll be talking about community energy and cooperative housing and hearing from a group of organisations that together are breaking new ground.
1: To unpack that, we're looking at the blending of these two community led movements, exploring how they can be combined to tackle the dual challenges of delivering environmentally sustainable and affordable homes.
0: These are two of the biggest issues facing society today. In 2002, median house prices in England were five times higher than median gross annual earnings. In 2021, that had grown to nine times. At the same time, the bulk of homes are highly energy inefficient and still dependent on gas.
1: So, in today's episode, we'll be chatting with Monica King, founding member of Bridport Co Housing, and Andy O'Brien, co director of Bristol Energy Cooperative.
0: as always you can reach out to us on our dedicated twitter handle if you haven't already go find and follow us at local zero pod to get involved with discussions over there also email us at localzeropod@gmail.com at gmail.com if you want to share some longer
4: thoughts
1: so we're all back easter's been and gone it's been a longer break for most people than usual with local zero pod so so probably some people are having withdrawal symptoms maybe yep. <laughs> um, yep. so let's bring fraser in welcome back fraser and uh, and have a wee chat
4: yeah yeah thanks it's nice to be back i'll, I'll be i haven't had withdrawals i've uh, i've quite enjoyed it to be honest it's, <laughs> just, it's <laughs> a, be too busy at the easter eggs every other week listening to you again god oh, it's just a nightmare <laughs> Uh, No, it's lovely to be back with all three of us as well. The last time it was just Matt and I, so to have everyone back, yeah, it feels good. It feels good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, very well.
0: Uh, I've been here, there and everywhere over the Easter holiday, catching up with folk and friends I hadn't seen since lockdown, so it's been nice. It's also been good to kind of get out of Scotland and see other parts of Britain and remind yourself that there are other places out there. Um, (laughs) And it's been, yeah, it's been great to catch up, but uh, firmly back at the desk now. Becky, you have a good Easter?
1: I did. I had a great Easter. I I didn't go anywhere, but I had lots of people coming to me. So my twins turned five over the Easter break. Wow. Um, My husband turned 30 something. Can't remember what. Um, So it's been. (laughs) Yeah, you need that kind of information (laughs)
0: for the birthday card, surely. Yeah. yeah. And the big badge.
1: Exactly. Um, no, been been really great. Been really nice to just, uh, you know, completely have a break from yeah. the energy and the work mindset and to just focus on blowing up balloons and party bags yeah. and yeah. all that kind of stuff.
0: Absolutely. And, and Fraser, as we speak, you are in a brand new office. You've started a new job.
4: I have started a new job. Yeah, it's actually with Regen. So Regen, for anyone who doesn't know formerly Regen Southwest, um, are a non-profit organisation or using sort of energy expertise to advocate for change in the energy system. So very much evidence-driven, very much analysis-driven, and they've brought me in to lower the tone, I suppose. Um, (laughs) They brought me in to lead on their energy justice, just transitions, and fuel poverty work. Oh, brilliant. So advocating anywhere from off-gen base level to local communities to build energy justice into the work that Regen does. So yeah, it's been exciting. They've also, I should say, since expanded into Scotland, so supporting the... The expansion across the UK as well, out of the Southwest, out of England and Wales. Um, But yeah, it's exciting. Great organisation, great work to be doing. Extremely, extremely happy to be doing it. Fantastic.
0: And I think another Strathclyde alumni, Simon Gill, I believe. Are you working with him? So another strong scottish connection he's done a lot of work uh, up in scotland too but it's great to see you're you broadening out into that area
4: yeah this is it strath gliders we're everywhere the the caledonian mafia that's who <laughs> we are we're, we're here to <laughs> by stealth take over the the organization eventually is our plan good stuff
1: and scotland isn't losing you just to be clear you are staying firmly in no glasgow. no no yeah okay great yeah I'll, I'll
4: travel i'll travel down to the office every now and then but i'll be firmly firmly based in glasgow It's a fair old commute to Exeter, though, Fraser, and you'll be getting to know that West
0: Coast Mainline pretty well. Uh,
4: Mate, mate. 11 hours on a train yesterday on the way down here. (laughs) 11 hours. My arse is killing me still. So
0: the next next episode surely (laughs) is going to be on transport, right, and the the state of our railways. Okay, just you blethering on for an hour. I was on holiday, so I should say fortunately. I was very, very glad and very honoured to be asked. Uh, but in the midst of the holiday, I was asked to contribute to a uh, Scottish Parliamentary Committee inquiry into energy prices. So wow. um, that was on the Tuesday after Bank Holiday Monday. So Bank Holiday Monday, <laughs> Easter Monday, uh, was spent doing quite a lot of preparation for that. But um, yeah, thrilled to be part of that. And obviously, um, you know, energy prices being, being where they are. But I also know, Becky, you had one eye on other events just before Easter with the IPCC report out the 6th assessment report.
1: Yes, yes, we heard we heard from working group 3 and um and actually I mean the report is amazing and and hefty and and worth a read if you're interested in it, but I also have to say that the carbon brief have done an amazing analysis mm. uh, if you just want to kind of dip into some of the the yep. top line findings.
4: Thank you. God for the carbon brief. I know, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely
1: brilliant. But I would say there are a couple of, and and the report covers a huge amount of stuff, but there are a couple of things that I think just worth, worth bringing up relevant to Local Zero. So... For the first time ever there was a chapter dedicated to demand services and social aspects of mitigation and that is really really exciting so right that's looking at all of the social science literature to try and understand how our behavior and the choices that we make in our day-to-day lives can help cut emissions Big parts of the focus on this, well, one massive part is around the foods we eat, Mm -hmm. but also the way we move around. So Fraser linking to your train journeys and how we're using energy in our buildings. And those last two in particular, so our travel and our buildings, link uh, quite strongly to another chapter, which is all about cities and urban areas. And I think this is really, really important for us to think about in Local Zero. So these places have a huge and a growing share in in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, yeah, and in fact, the top hundred highest emitting cities account for almost twenty wow. percent of the global carbon footprint. So that's huge, and urban land areas are set to triple between twenty fifteen and twenty fifty. So this has a massive, uh, a massive implication for for carbon emissions, but also. Presents huge opportunities, so around resource efficiency and decarbonisation that can happen in these areas. Yeah. So excellent. Really, really exciting to see, and I just thought I'd share with you some of the some of the big sort of ticket items that are talked about in this in this space. So one massive aspect is using spatial planning, making cities more compact, more resource efficient, and if we do that, we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by around about a quarter by twenty fifty. So that's really exciting just to see how planning and changing changing that the kind of a small element can have a massive role on impact. Um, so things like making our homes closer to job centres, yeah, getting people away from private vehicles, more walking, more and better public transport, and also green infrastructure, which I think is really, really important because this sort of stuff like urban forest, green roofs, this has a massive impact on sequestration, but also avoiding emissions and reducing energy use just because of the cooling that's that's in place so huge opportunities here for cities to really contribute to our greenhouse gas emission reductions and yeah. great evidence backing all of this up from the IPCC.
0: I could see Fraser there nodding uh, with, with, with strong agreement there around the uh, more efficient and low carbon public transportation, Fraser. Yes, obviously please. you're already feeling the strain on the train.
4: That's really, <laughs> really important to hear. We've been banging that drum for a long time. So in terms of uh, public transport, not just on we need to reduce emissions, which we do. But when you expand public transport, you make it more affordable, you make it more efficient, more convenient. You can also, as Becky mentioned from the report, connect people to opportunities and to each other much, much more effectively. That on its own is an amazing thing. I also think the in terms of green and roof space and all that kind of stuff, great for sequestration, great for cooling, also great for mental health, for well-being, all these different... It's, so the holistic benefits are so so massive if you're willing to jump on it and i think with the local council elections coming up this is something that we can do with with pushing on and nudging on a little bit more as well
0: well and, and something we covered uh in a previous episode on co-benefits on the pwc report so definitely listeners please pick that up around you know it's not just energy energy bleeds into other stuff but on, on the train travel noted a few days ago that the uh, various train operators are are severely discounting train travel over the coming months in light of the cost of living crisis. So fingers crossed um, uh, that'll make it make a difference. But I think probably that the last thing just to note is Fraser. When the last episode went out, the energy security strategy was being announced, so we didn't really get our teeth into it. But just yeah. So any any quick reflections uh, from you both? I mean, I, I I noted there wasn't a great deal around energy demand there, Becky, which you've talked a lot about. There was a little bit in there around. Other kind of community energy type pieces onshore wind if communities want it. Warm words around solar. But any any reflections? Um, things you liked, things you
4: didn't. Yeah, I ultimately it was disappointed. Um great commitment. I think the offshore wind stuff's quite exciting. I think it was genuinely reasonably ambitious for what we're going for. But the big issue was around short-term solutions to the crisis. Now, Mm. this wouldn't have been such a big issue had they not kicked the can in the spring statement, in the budget originally, saying we've got an energy security strategy coming up. So everyone was expecting something to come out. It wasn't there. We don't know if there's ever going to be an energy demand strategy either. But in terms of the crisis that we're in the midst of just now, nuclear in 10 years is going to do nothing to help someone who is one missed payment away from an irretrievable spiral of poverty within the coming months, even over the summer. If you're talking about someone on a on a standing charge on a prepayment meter, they're in danger still now, not just when the prices go up in October. So nothing in the short term, nothing around efficiency, which is so easy, so obvious, which just it makes me wonder why on earth, what is the reasoning behind it, other than the Chancellor or the Treasury says no? What is the actual reasoning behind it? I have to know. I have to have to know. Onshore wind again, the last one, just massively, massively disappointing in general. We kind of knew it was coming in the weeks before. There's a big effort of some of the backbenchers around the Mar show and stuff like that. Yeah. Saying, "Oh no," but people don't like to look at. It. I'm just going, "Come on, man! Come on! It's mm. 2022. We've got shovel-ready projects. We've got stuff ready to go that can help people in like a year, two years at most. Stuff we can do now. And uh, yeah, but it's people's bills. Yep. Over the next few months, Becky.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not surprised and I'm simultaneously disappointed to see a lack of focus on the de- demand side basically and what people can can be doing. I also, it's an area that worries me once we start to talk about people's behavior and people's choices, because I think often it's framed as, you know, a choice that that everyone has. And sometimes it's not as simple as that. And the choice isn't always as obvious, or there's these barriers that could be hidden. So you know, I, I can see why it's not there. I can see why it's much easier to grab hold of things like offshore wind, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of big technology items. It's a lot simpler to deal with. Um, and I think that the the demand side is absolutely critical, but we've got to be so careful about embedding it in here and the the how is going to be, you know, the devil's going to be in the detail in that one. And I don't think we've fully cracked that, that nut yet. Absolutely.
4: I think a cynic might argue that the reason we've not focused on efficiency and demand side is that there isn't as much or perceived to be money in it. Do you think that's part of it? We're, we're going for all this big stuff when it's like we've got easy, relatively straightforward stuff just now to do. I don't know. Well, if I maybe I'm just if
1: I think back to the episode we did with Rufus Grantham from Bankers Without Boundaries, I mean that he gave us some some really interesting figures to think about, which shows that efficiency on its own, it doesn't, it just doesn't cut it. But when you start to combine efficiency with these other measures and come up with really innovative and new, I guess, whole system mechanisms, So bringing together local supply efficiency and some of these greening projects where you get multiple benefits back, you can start to build a better financial case.
0: And I think that leads us nicely on to today's episode, which is looking to combine those dual challenges of affordable housing and environmental sustainability by bringing communities together to finance and design and govern their own housing in a way that is socially progressive but also environmentally friendly. So at that point, I
3: really do think we ought to bring in the guests. Hello, uh, my name's Andy O'Brien. I'm a, a co-founder and director of Bristol Energy Cooperative. We have a mission, and that mission is to invest in renewables, cut carbon, and build community. And we've been going for just over 10 years now.
2: My name is Monica. Monica King. I'm part of Bridport Co Housing, and our objective is to build 53 homes in the common house. They're all affordable homes. Everybody that lives there has an equal say in how
0: it's all run. Okay, so Monica, co housing will be an unfamiliar topic and, and notion for many of our listeners. I just wanted you to begin, please, with defining what co housing means and, and especially what it means to you and, and how you've taken this, this idea forward in your area.
2: Okay, so co housing is a form of living whereby a group usually organizes a number of homes and a common house, and the homes are private space. But the common house is shared by everybody. So uh, it it offers a whole range of benefits, such as you can have smaller homes because um, I don't need a big dining room if I can use the common house to hold a party or invite all my friends around. Um, And I don't need a, a spare bedroom if we've got guest accommodation. That's the way it works. It's usually started by the people who want to live in it. That's the normal arrangement. And as you develop the project you also are developing a community so we regularly advertise to people about what we're trying to do and if they're interested come and talk to us and join us and help us make it happen um i've been doing this pretty much full-time for 13 years so it is not um a speedy process but actually it will be faster in future because um the groups that other groups have pioneered this and they take a long time as well but now there's there's a, there is there is more support um, in the planning system and government funding system for projects like ours. But you've still got to satisfy them, um, you know. Or the leg- the legality and all that sort of thing. So.
0: Absolutely. So so it's it's not a small development. These are fifty three homes that you're developing, as I understand. And something, as you say, has been in development for 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 twelve years or more. Um, I just wanted you to tell me a little bit more about how the the principles of co housing, how you've taken these and a, a, applied them against some of the principles of environmental sustainability. Because I can imagine you could develop a co housing. Um, development without it being a sustainable one. So how how key is the notion of clean, green living to your vision of co-housing? Well, it's key to ours. And generally, I would say that most co-housing groups
2: aim to be greener because the origins of co-housing really are in uh, Denmark in the 60s. And so all those hippies that we like to make jokes about, um, some of the values that they've Supported are gradually now, 50 years later, coming good. Our aim is that people have an affordable way of life, so it's not just an affordable home, but that um, by reducing their consumption and expenditure, they will, they will have a better quality of life. And so, therefore, um, a, a microgrid, when Damon came and talked to us about it, we thought, this would be perfect. This is just, this is just what we needed. Because we have promised that we will reduce our expenditure as households by forty percent in the first four years, so going from a, a gas cooker to the induction hob, from our own electricity will have a huge impact on our bills.
1: I'm just uh, you mentioned about you know the switch from gas to induction. What are the other things that people are really experiencing as you start to implement that microgrid? So so where. Where is the difference? I mean, are people seeing the energy generation right there and then? Are they directly investing in it? Um, You know, what is the real kind of experience for people living in this in this uh, cooperative housing with a microgrid compared to what they might have had before?
2: Well, we are. This is a little bit premature to answer you because nobody's actually moved in yet. So the first people will be moving in in August. The sort of changes that we made were by that we had people that didn't want to give up gas cooking. But we persuaded them that um, an induction hub is as good as a gas cooker. And so we'd like to find out whether that is true. (laughs) And also, of course, we haven't had to pipe gas. You know, so the thousands of pounds that it costs to connect to the gas grid and to pipe the gas around the site costs a huge impact in what a co-housing group can do. Um, And we've had to compromise right, left and centre. But we have managed to stick to many of our green intention.
1: So folk haven't moved in yet, but they've been intricately involved with the development. With the, with the microgrid, do, do, they, do they have shares in the ownership? Uh, what, and, and can they, can they see it? Is, it? is it there and then? Is it going to be a visceral experience for them? Or is it something that's really just kind of behind the scenes?
2: Oh, no. It's, it's going to be in a particular spot on our site um, to the northeast, and so it will be like a little bit of pallowed ground, you know <laughs> fenced off, obviously, to keep our kids safe and everybody else no it won't it won't be hidden. I don't really know about um our people investing i mean our, my husband and I have invested in other energy groups around our area and and but we haven't invested in this one because he didn't have money at the time, and so I don't know what individuals have done but, but it's more to do more I think is that. Our, our big commitment is that we have taken this on. We want we want this to happen. And in a way, um, it's, it's, there's an element of pioneering and co-housing itself is pioneering uh, because you're going against society's normal way of doing things. And similarly, with going for microgrid, you know, it's... um,
0: Well, you're doing it twice. You're doing it twofold, right? Yeah, you're doing yeah. two things against the grain. Yeah. Normally centralised power, normally... Yeah major housing developers building, you know, identikit housing. And
2: even with it's, so I'm sorry, I'm speaking over you, but oh, no. um, I, when I get going, you can tell I am quite enthusiastic about me. But also, not only are we going against um, the sort of normal way of doing things, but we, we also, we use sociocracy as a way of working together. That, combined with us being a community benefit society, means that everybody who's part of the group is required to speak, you know, so... Either, okay, if you don't know enough to be able to answer sensibly, fair enough. I'll hold your fire and tell you no more. But the idea is that we want to hear from everybody. And so we make decisions by consent. And that means if somebody has an objection, we welcome it. Because they've seen a flaw in what we are proposing. I mean, it might be one that we can just change by delaying it, you know, saying, Okay, well it or we try it for three months and see if it works, or but nonetheless, I really like the fact that people are encouraged to speak up.
0: So that's an interesting topic which we've touched upon on the pod before around citizens' assemblies, obviously a different format there rather than you're inviting the views of of the community but not maybe a community that co-owns and co-governs a particular entity, in in your case, a housing housing association. How do you find that process? I mean, I'm assuming this is uh, an uninformed position. I'm assuming this is a long, laborious process, but ultimately leads to decisions which people are bought into.
2: It varies actually. Sometimes decisions that you think might take forever are actually done within ten minutes. You know, it can be it's you know sociocracy aims to be effective and efficient. And and there are times when it really is and even we're surprised. But to be honest, because within a group was a lot of different people and views, what you really want is everybody to feel hers everybody's views to be considered and everybody to know that even though they they didn't really get exactly what they wanted they were part of it
0: and given that by 2050 we're looking to be net zero there are many many uh, other targets in the interim around reducing um, energy consumption carbon emissions from our housing looking at the co-housing model against those objectives do you see that the Co-housing can help us achieve those objectives in terms of making our homes new homes, I might add, making new homes more sustainable. Is it is it critical and essential to delivering on those targets? And and if so, why?
2: Well, one of the factors about the site that we got permission to build on, one of the reasons why they allowed us to do it is because we are avowed reducers of car use. You know, it's it's our Primary goal to reduce journeys and car use. One of the very first meetings that our group held, uh, we had a facilitator, and uh, what she got us to do was put a rope across the room, and you had to go and put yourself on the on the rope in relation to how important your car was to you. So some people were at one end because they were disabled and couldn't get round otherwise, and many of us were crammed near the other end. You know, okay, you have to have a car now and then, but exercising green practices in a group like this, there will be peer pressure. So I might feel like I can't be bothered with um, organising my tinfoil or whatever. But uh, people will say, Monica, what are you doing with your tinfoil? You know, I mean, That's, that might sound like a bit trying, but it, would, it, it does encourage good behaviour. It does encourage people to, the, to do the right thing when they will be inclined to forget it. Oh, if you can't be bothered, you could say, "Well, look, I'll bring my silver paper round to you, and you can sort it." Do you know what I mean? That there's cooperation, give and take, and what you want is people with the right sort of intention and direction of travel.
1: So, Monica, I know you've been at this for for quite a long time. I think it was back in two thousand and eight, was it, that you initially set this rolling. We're now twenty twenty two, so it's not something that's happened fast. Have you Have you learned anything during that time that could help? other groups, transition or adopt co-housing approaches uh, perhaps more rapidly, if this is something that we think is going to be a key component that could help underpin some of our transition to net zero, how do you think we could do this in a way where we might be able to shift at a faster rate and really, really get some of this into action, um, you know, in a, in a shorter timeframe?
2: Right. First of all, I went for tra- this purposes of accuracy. I started in, in April 2009. It, it was started by other people, some of whom were still members. So that doesn't change the essence of what you're asking. I think the reason it, that it will become quicker is because now there are um, what they're, they're called community housing hubs, and they've been set up over the UK. And um, there, there there is a place where you can go for advice on how to... Say so there's, so there's 10 of us, we want advice on how to start, and you go to one of these hubs and they will be able to tell you about things like how to get government funds to help you get going, you know, how to find an architect um, and point you to the co-housing network, who are absolutely the UK co-housing network um, has is a resource that's, that that um, represents all the various co-housing networks in the UK, which come in many forms. Um, so I I think that I I genuinely think that from now on it will be become quicker. And in fact, my suggestion is that there are a lot of co-housing groups that are like mushrooms at the moment, and suddenly they're all going to pop up.
1: With what sounds like a very exciting experience, not just having an environmental impact, not just reducing bills, but building, building that community, building a sense of social cohesion and belonging that sounds, I think, especially in an age where we've all been, well, for me at least, kind of locked inside a room and talking to people through a, through a virtual interface for the last few years, yeah. sounds like something very appealing.
2: Well, actually, um, the, somebody did some work on how co-housing groups managed through, through the lockdown because people couldn't use their common houses. But obviously, within cohousing, you're always working on the basis of the trust. You 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 know who your neighbours are. So when, you know, when something doesn't go right, you you know that that they know that you're a reliable person, and maybe they'll know that you're not reliable, but at least they know. <laughs> you know, they'll be forward. I got really interested in cohousing, um, having first come through the whole thing about having learning about life after oil, and um, the, the 2008 crash. And I thought, actually, other people are our insurance. In co-housing, I see that we are each other's insurance policy. So there could be shortfall met by different people at different times. You know, and some people will bring financial resources. Other people will bring understanding and a load of other things to it. But we will, as a group, well, it's it's greater than the sum of the parts, you know.
1: (laughs) Um, I, I don't know that I had a huge amount additional to to kind of go on. I was really interested in that that learning that you're that you're taking from this and sort of thinking about. I like the analogy to mushrooms, sort of springing up all over the place, um, because you're right. It's not something that's been particularly prevalent, I think, in in um, in the conversation, and and it sounds like that there could be quite a lot of benefits and opportunities. Where do you see those key barriers as being? You, you know, there's there's clearly opportunities here for people to engage through these hubs. What what are some of the critical barriers that you think still remain? And is there anything that we really need to be doing about them?
2: Land and money. Every co-housing group struggles to find a site. We were very fortunate. We have a lovely, beautiful site in a beautiful county. And money, we don't have much money. We've got some people that had, you know, significant resources but you know we haven't got any millionaires and, and, and obviously if you live in an affordable housing neighborhood and you're excluded if you're wealthy you can't live with us
1: you know.
0: well good stuff and probably a really good spot for us to, to hand over it's been fascinating thank you very much
1: it's so great to hear monica's enthusiasm for co-housing but now let's bring in andy o'brien Andy, we've heard from Monica about co-housing, but today we're talking about the nexus between co-housing and microgrids. And I know this is something that you're doing in Bristol Energy Cooperative. But so before we get into the detailed discussion, maybe we could just step back and you could give us a bit of an overview of what Bristol Energy Cooperative is and and what you're doing.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, So we uh, actually set up back in 2011, uh, so over 10 years ago now. Uh, Back then we were all volunteers, uh, but now we've got uh, five staff members. And we had a mission to invest in renewables, cut carbon and build community. That's what we're about. We've now got over 1,200 members and we've raised over £15 million over the years to actually fund our, our projects. So that's come from a mixture of commercial loans, loans from social funders, but also from community share and bond offers and about half of that has come from come from the community so that's that's key that, that the community really is involved and that's allowed us to build up a portfolio of of 9 megawatts of solar pv and 100 kilowatts of battery storage uh, and all that powers the equivalent to about 3000 typical homes we yeah we're a co-op but also we're a community benefit society you know we are we exist to provide a benefit to the community and one of those benefits is providing that renewable energy but also we provide physical money to the community so we've managed to facilitate over £300,000 worth of community benefit funds or payments to the local community since we started. So yeah in the past we've done lots of solar, some battery storage, we've got a hydro scheme in development at the moment but also um, probably as as exciting as any of them to us really right now is, is the microgrids that we've been working on and um, this has been going on for A good number of years now and it's really exciting that two of the schemes we're working on are are very very close to fruition
0: so andy before we move into the the microgrids because we desperately want to hear more about those two projects microgrid will be an unfamiliar term to many of our listeners Uh, and i just wanted you just just to pause and unpack exactly what that means to you and then what the two examples the two projects that you've been working on
3: yeah, a microgrid is is pretty much a, a standalone electricity network. Some people call it an, an energy island. It might not be a complete island. You might still be connected to the outside world uh, because if you're, if you're just generating your own energy on site and then something desperately big happens on site and it all goes down, then you're a bit stuck. So usually there is some connection to the outside world. And in terms of the, the microgrids that we've been working on, these are, it's all about renewables. So they basically combine excellent, so if you think of say a new build housing estate, and that's the ones that we're mainly talking about today, they combine really good energy efficiency with on site renewables, with energy storage, and then the smart technology, which is linking it all together. And because guess it's been done in a smart way and say, for example, with the energy storage, we've got one big battery rather than lots of individual batteries. That system can be used in a smart way, and residents are getting most of their energy from the on-site generation. It's being shared across the site. Uh, but we can top up from the grid when needed. Uh, but also we can ex- ex- export any excess energy to the grid. So it, it's a two-way thing. We, 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 we can actually be providing uh, sort of services to the national grid, helping the outside world become be more stable. In terms of keeping the, fr- the frequency of the network stable so that's that's the beauty of it these these microgrids are they're not just sort of isolated they're actually contributing to a a much more wider flexible system excellent and you haven't just developed one you've developed two
0: two of these extremely kind of cutting edge projects so we've we've heard Little bit about Bridport co housing from Monica. So that's one project you're involved with. But there is another project, Water Lilies, which is a bit closer to home, I think, to you, Northwest Bristol. So which
3: would you like to begin with first? Because they both sound fascinating. I need to go one step back first, actually, Just just introduce Damon, who's a, a big partner in, in this scheme. So Damon has his own company, it's called Clean Energy Prospector. And we've been working with him for a number of years because his company manages the metering and the billing for our rooftop solar sites. So he's got a very much a technical background. So in terms of the, the microgrid development, his company's been leading on the technical aspects. Us as a corp, we lead on the community funding bits. So yeah, we've had this long-standing relationship. And Damon was particularly involved at, at a community centre in Easton uh, where he's looking to to do a lot of energy efficiency. And we had solar panels on the roof there already. But he wanted to take this further, and he managed to get some grant funding to replace the gas heating in the building with an electric heat network. So this has ended up using an interseasonal heat, and it's stored in boreholes in the park behind the community centre. And there's actually about two kilometres of piping in the ground. So the system was designed by a company called ISACS, our solar panels help power their electricity energy centre that's running the whole heat network. And the neighbouring building also gets its heat from this electricity network. And we're currently looking to extend that to the neighbouring houses that are on the same electricity substation. So this, 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 this was actually the first proper microgrid we sort of did. It's a retrofit rather than new build, and that's known as the Owen Square Community Energy Project. So we got an awful lot of learning out of that. What we wanted to do was to move on there because you know we've been doing solar on rooftops for ages. We had some standalone battery storage that we'd been running as a pilot for a few years. We wanted to go further and integrate all these technologies into into new residential housing, and that's where we we started to look for who who, who we could work with on that. In terms of we needed very supportive housing developers who were willing to sort of go the extra mile to accommodate innovation. Along with the, you know, the typical complexity of building any any housing development, so we're very lucky that in Bristol there's a developer called Bright Green Futures, who very much meets that that bill. They've been doing lots of interesting community-driven housing development for quite a few years, um, and they were developing this this scheme in in Bristol. It's called the Water Lily Scheme. Uh, there are about thirty houses, thirty homes in total, and they they were willing to 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 go on on this journey with us, so Beck as a as an energy corp it is is funding the microgrid elements of this. So that's really the battery, the big battery, uh, the cabling for the network, and we're, and we're also funding some of the the solar PV. And then Damon, his company is C Pro. He's the he's a technical developer really. And then we've got um Bright Green Futures, who are the housing developer who are covering you know, the. the the traditional costs of building of building these schemes. So, yeah, on site we've got very good energy efficiency, we've got PV, we've got heat pumps, one large Tesla battery and it's all smart controls, there's EV charging in there and it's yeah, all linked together. And I have to say it's amazing to go on site, you know, you work away on these things for years and years and years and slog away overcoming this barrier and that barrier. But now it's it's there. It's up, you know the, the, some residents are already on site. Some some who are sort of finishing some internal self builds themselves. The vast majority of the residents are moving in in the summer, and yeah, they they are going to be largely zero carbon. That that is what we're aiming for.
1: So, I mean, yeah, I could see your uh, your entire uh, body pricking up when you were talking about going on site and the I guess the experience that you're having because it sounds like these are very um complex schemes where you've got these homes that are energy efficient you've got all these different bits of kit and technology and i know we could you know the tech technical side of it i'm sure we could spend you could spend hours and hours talking about but what really fascinates fascinates me is the kind of experiential side of it so the the experience that that you have being on site but i'm also wondering what that's like for people that are living in those homes i mean what what are they seeing? What's the impact of this site on them? Is it something that's all behind the scenes and they might just be getting, you know, cheaper energy or um, saving emissions? Or is there something else that's quite exciting for them as well?
3: There's a, they're very excited about it. I mean, they've, they've been involved in this from the outset because for us to be able to actually develop a microgrid, you, you have to design the underlying network in a specific way which takes a lot of sign off from various organizations. And, and once it's built that way, you can't, you can't just change it. Not, not, not easily at all. And so they had to be involved in the discussions at the very outset. There are lots of sort of uh, parties involved in this. So the legal documents are quite complicated. And so they need to be fully aware of what's going on. They need to understand that, for example, they, they, they can choose swaps out of this. They want to. They can. They can. They can get their electricity from a, a, you know, a traditional supplier. But really, for the microgrid to work best and for them to get energy savings, it's best if if they're all in it together. So we've worked really hard to to explain how it all works and what the benefits are. And they're they're completely behind it. You know, and they actually voted to decide whether they wanted to go ahead with it. And if they said no, we we wouldn't have gone ahead with it with a full blown microgrid. You may have had elements of these different bits of technologies. But you wouldn't have had the full-blown smart integrated technologies. So yes, they're very much behind it. And it's, it's it's the same with at Bridport. You know that the enthusiasm for something doing something together that you know almost like a, a typical co-housing group has. They've got the same. Not surprising. They've got the same enthusiasm for for doing something about climate change, and and they're willing to work together with us and and different partners to to make it happen. So you've got a slight there. Are, there are slightly more bodies involved because you've actually got Bridport Co Housing. are doing some are going to sort of own some of the the buildings, and then you've got Bridport Community Land Trust that are also involved. But ultimately, the technology is the same, and the the overall co working is is the same. And and what what's so nice really is that you know we are a community energy group. They they are a community group. they we're both co ops ultimately. And there's a natural synergy between the two groups. I mean, as co-ops, it's in our DNA to cooperate. So we're you know, we used to working collaboratively to overcome problems. And the housing side, you know, they've got confidence that the community energy side can deliver the technology and the finance. And we've got confidence in them that they'll bear with us as we deal with sort of the bumps in the road that that come with doing these sort of innovation projects. So it's a bit like, I don't know, if you're being bullied at work, it's really hard to work with your boss. But if actually you, you've got a really collaborative way of working with your work colleagues, then it's a joy to be there and, and, and things happen in, in a nice way. And, they, and they're more likely to actually happen in the end as well. And that's that's how it feels with these schemes. So, Andy, so there's there's two key points there,
0: I think, about the synergies between the, the two cooperatives. One is that Beck Bristol Energy Cooperative, has a very strong emphasis on kind of environmental, sustainable development but you're saying that actually your partners at Bridport Co-housing and and their their cooperative members have that similar mindset but also you've actually got that same kind of community cooperative ethos so it's not just that they're environmentally minded you too but you've got a similar way of working they're, they're quite that's quite important I think to deliver on the same objectives because you could you could be very environmentally minded they too but actually you might be approaching this from a cooperative perspective community action grassroots Whereas another environmentally minded organization might be private and for profit.
3: Um, so is, has that been really important from the get-go? It has, yeah, it, it really has. I mean, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we set up the co-op in the first place, because nice as it is that we've got very large companies building lots of renewables across the country, and you know we do work with some of them. Quite often, the money that those those companies make leaves the local area, and it, it doesn't, doesn't really stay with the local area. So in doing what we're doing, money does stay in the local area. Uh, we've got an awful lot of local contractors working on the schemes as well. So that's 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 really key. And and if we're going to bring people with us in the energy transition, then they need to feel involved and they need to feel wanted and you know and treasured. You know we we know how how big some of these intrusions on life, some of these changes may may end up being, uh, and. If we're not going to bring everybody with us, what we that we need to do, then it's not going to work. So, yeah, community energy is a way of really, you know, it's working with the neighbours in your street and working it all out together. So, yeah, it's, it's really it's really crucial.
1: It sounds like a really, really exciting, um, exciting development. But one thing that that strikes me is that it seems also fairly niche. Like when we were chatting with Monica, we talked about the fact that the, the co-housing um, development has been, a very long and evolving process. So if this is gonna bring the benefits that, that we're talking about, and if we think about, you know, how could we roll that out? How could we start to see those benefits perhaps um, arising elsewhere around the country? You know, Do you see there being any barriers that, that need to be addressed in this? Uh, what have you learned along the way that you think could help um, others perhaps you know, learn from your lessons or take this on further or, or or reach the end in a in a faster state.
3: Well I suppose the good thing is we we've had a lot of learning. Um uh, we, we we sort of know how to do it now to at least to a certain extent and there's there's nice templates that, that people can use there. There I think there are different aspects is, I mean part of it is is sort of selling the sizzle because what what we're aiming here for is um these these are fully fully net zero microgrids. So that that means they're they're not having to draw down overall energy from the grid. So where you've got parts of the country where there's real grid constraints, you can't build sort of new standalone renewables there because they can't connect to the grid. But here, because actually it's, it's internal, you're not putting a load on the grid. You're actually taking a load off the grid and you've got the battery storage there that provides a two-way support network for the grid. So that there's a real plus there. And then, in terms of pure pure money, you know, we we are aiming to provide energy to the residents on these two these two schemes at, at between five and fifteen percent less than the the typical local energy bill, and we can do that because it's all integrated. You know, you're getting the best best benefit from that. What we've also done, we've, we you know, we're aware that in, you know, in in the middle of winter, then the site's not going to be producing enough energy on its own. So we need to import the energy there. So what we've done, we've actually signed a a 30 year contract with Ripple Energy to buy the equivalent of the electricity shortfall that we'll need. And that's, that'd be buying it from the electricity from one of their wind farms. So it's truly net zero in terms of any, any energy we're not, we're not generating on site is coming from renewable sources elsewhere. And this is a this especially right now we you know with the energy crisis, this is a really good hedge against price volatility. You know, it won't cover all 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 our expenses and things, but it it is smoothing things out, and we can tell the residents that now, so they they know that there's an element of stability in their energy supply. And right now, how many people across the country can say that, you know in terms of what's going to happen to their energy bills in the next six months, twelve months? you know it's all over the show and it's it's not going to go away even if ukraine's is sorted out this isn't going to go away because it's not just related to ukraine so,
0: so andy we're already looking to the future here and i just wanted to to end really on question for you and you know what what does beck's future look like are you looking to do more of these microgrids in conjunction with co-housing or
3: i mean i know that isn't the only thing you do but what what does the future look like we're working on, on lots of different things. I mean, we're, we're, just this week, I was spending an awful lot of time, you know, progressing the idea of having a, a regional energy services company that is providing, you know, deep energy retrofit, whole house, whole street, sort of along these sort of energy sprung model. Yeah, you know, I was very interested to listen to, to Rufus on your, your podcast just the other week. So much what he was saying, I was like jumping up and down, saying, "Yes, I know, I know, I can't agree more." That all this stuff will only happen if it's done at scale. We 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 can't just insulate a few odd houses right now because it doesn't stack up financially to those householders. But if we're doing it at a at a a local energy plan level, we're doing it working say with local authorities, and the money is actually coming in from the pension funds from institutional investors, then it starts stacking up and you can do all sorts. But if we don't get to that stage, if if we're just forever thinking it's going to come in through the odd government grants, the odd handout, it's not going to work. For me, my, if there's one thing I could change really around all this energy system is that it's to somehow get it out there that the money for all this transition isn't gonna come from government, it doesn't need to. It's coming from the commercial sector, it's coming from the institutional sector. What we need is the seed funding, the supportive policies from the government to allow these things to happen. And it's not there at the moment. There aren't enough carrots, there aren't enough sticks. And so we're all re- running around trying to do little things. So at the moment, there aren't. there's virtually no government support for early stage development funding of. of for community schemes, you know, whether it's a microgrid or, or something else. The Urban Community Energy Fund went a while ago. The Rural Community Energy Fund is just going now, I think. And there's nothing to replace it. And just for tiny amounts of money that could be put in, I mean, really tiny amounts of money, all sorts of massive things could come out, out of it as a result of that funding. We, whatever Beck ends up doing in the next five years hugely depends on our ability to, to actually make proper connections with the institutional investment sector and bring them into doing supporting anything we're working at that just becomes so much bigger at that scale.
0: Well Andy thank you we wish you all the best for the future and we wish you all the best with these uh, two housing developments and I hope when I'm down uh, Dorset um, and Bristol next time around I'll, I'll make sure to pay a visit so thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure.
3: Great thank you very much indeed.
1: You've been listening to Local Zero. Thank you again to our guests, Andy O'Brien from Bristol Energy Cooperative and Monica King of Bridport Co-Housing in Dorset, who we heard from earlier in the episode.
0: Our next episode will be a live one or a little bit live. We'll be reflecting on a recording of a live uh, event that we'll be running at the University of Edinburgh, which is all about green leads and voluntary carbon offsetting. So we will be joined... Uh, hopefully by Fraser Stewart again, um, but also Magnus Davidson. And of course, can I say Becky? Will you be there?
1: I don't know yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she might be there. <laughs> Fingers and toes crossed. But um, it'll be a really special episode and we, we hope you can tune in for that one. But in the meantime, if you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with the chats over there. And if you've got any longer thoughts, email address is gmail. And until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.
4: Produced by The Spoken Media.